to Bonnets of Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of 18th, 19th, and 20th century women writers. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, we're joined by Danielle Spratt and Bridget Draxler. Now, a few months ago, Lauren, you attended the Jasna Greater Chicago Region Spring Gala. Mm-hmm. It's a mouthful. And immediately messaged me afterwards, like, Hannah, I wish you had seen this one presentation um yeah so bridget and danielle gave this awesome talk about their book which is called engaging in the age of austin and they also um were talking about the sort of new and exciting ways that they're trying to engage their communities and their students with 18th 19th 20th century women writers you know something (laughs) that we maybe know a little bit about but i have to say that um quite a bit of the conversation was dominated by one Mr. Henry Tilney. Right. And so obviously when you told me that, I was like, "Mm, no, I don't think so in very typical Hannah fashion because I love Mr. Tilney. Yeah, (laughs) I know. You know, Uh, can't say anything about my sweet baby, Foxy Fields. He's my boy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know that this is dumb because obviously anytime someone kind of admits to being a Wickham apologist, I'm like, get out you're done yeah yeah you gotta go home and it's always because he's cute right or he's like a bad boy and I'm just like I like the charming nerd and that's always what I think Mr Tilney is yeah so I didn't even hear the talk and I was just like uh no this is unfair I know they're talking to people (laughs) like me so you promised that you would get them to come on the show and just basically say all of that stuff again so that I could really feel awful about myself uh and that's what you did Yeah, basically, I was like, hey, guys, why don't you come on here and just do the entire talk over again (laughs) for our (laughs) listeners? Um, They were super lovely. Um, I'm just really thankful that they made the time to come on our show and talk to us. So let's jump into this interview because I have a feeling that maybe um, we're going to talk a little bit more about Mr. Tilney afterwards. Bridget Draxler teaches writing at St. Olaf College, and Danielle Spratt is an associate professor of English and the director of faculty engaged practices and service learning at California State University. Um, they met in England, oh. and they have an adorable meet-cute story, one that should be filmed. We were both finishing up PhD programs Um finished, defended our dissertations and we're going into our first jobs the following fall. And we just um, ended up with this brilliant opportunity to spend the summer at Cotton House, which um, if you don't know what it is, Google it. It's amazing. Um, But they had, um, they have a great library there for visiting scholars uh, to research. And then the, it's actually the stables that were um, kind of renovated for very, very uh, nice living for scholars. So we just lived there oh. and read and studied and walked the gardens. And it was, it's pretty magical. I Even thinking back to it, I can't, I kind of can't believe that that program really existed. Yeah, it's super idyllic. And um, I had the opportunity to go twice. I went once when I was starting to write my um, dissertation in 2009. Um, And then uh, the second time when I met Bridget, and both times I remember staying at the stables and thinking, like, I'm never going to live better than this. It's um, sort of the poshest place you can imagine. Um, Just sort of being immersed in rare books and scholars and fans of Austin who are doing kind of similar things to you. Um, So yeah, it's really, it's such a wonderful setting and really supports writing um, about women by women. I think um, it's, it's tended to be mostly women who go there. Um, Not all, of course, there's some really amazing um, male scholars who go as well, but um, it, it was really just such a perfect place to start um, this journey that we've been on. <laughs> and then what were just, I mean, I know this is a big question, but like, what was your dissertation on just out of curiosity? <laughs> um, so my dissertation was called the scientifically marked body and was looking at um, literary interventions in um, the scientific revolution. And I was particularly interested in the way that gender was portrayed 
in um, scientific texts from the time period. So I started out with a chapter on Francis Bacon, um, but I wrote on Margaret Cavendish, who's still one of my all-time favorite writers and, and figures to teach. Students love her sci-fi writing. Um, and I have her portrait in my living room, by the way. I don't know that I've ever told you that. No, <laughs> I love that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's such a conversation piece when you have people over. <laughs> it's um, it's actually a horrible conversation piece. It was like, who's the random woman in a ball gown on your wall? <laughs> I need to have you over to my house, and then it would be a good conversation. Piece. Yeah, seriously, that's so that's amazing. I have a picture of Jane Austen in my living room, but oh, um, she's in my office. Yeah, that's a good that's a good place to have her. <laughs> um, uh, and then my dissertation um, ended with uh, sort of nods to to Mary Shelley and also to some medical writing that Austin does in her later work. Um, so I was back at Chawton when I met Bridget to work on um, women's medical writing, particularly in uh, cookbooks. Um, yeah, so it was really cool. And Bridget was doing like amazing multimodal work as well as traditional archival research while we were there, as I'm recalling, right? Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I literally cannot remember what my dissertation was called. I, I think that's <laughs> that's either um, a total comfort or completely horrifying to any of your listeners who are in graduate school, but. Um, what I was doing at Chatton House was I was researching the friendship of Joanna Bailey and Mariah Edgeworth. Because my, cool. my dissertation was really about the intersection between theater and um, the novel at the in the late 18th and early 19th century. And the it's it's often described as like the dark ages of British theater. Um <laughs> But it, it was also the kind of the moment where the novel was really coming in, into its own. And so I was kind of studying the influence between those two things. And so at Chon House, I was studying um, Joanna Bailey, who is arguably the most famous female um, playwright at the time. And Mariah Edgeworth, who was, um, I guess, also arguably the most famous female uh, novel of the time. And they had this decades long friendship. And so I was really trying to figure out how that might have influenced their writing. Um, and and then the following summer when we were at um, Jane Austen camp, I was really looking <laughs> more at, at Austen there. I, I didn't study Austen at Schottenhaus, but, um, but I was looking at her um, at Northanger Abbey and specifically the influence of um, George Coleman's play Bluebeard, which is a mm -hmm. total trip. I highly recommend it, but it's, it's this... Um, it's weird, ironic, parodic um, play, short play that's really typical of romantic melodrama, but it it has so many really interesting echoes to go um, Austen's gothic satire, right? I mean, I think we we often frame Northanger Abbey with the the seven horror novels that she mentions, but actually, gothic novels and gothic literature at the time took themselves kind of seriously, and um, gothic drama didn't. And so that's why I think <laughs> Northanger Abbey is much closer to the kind of gothic theater that was um, that was taking place at the time. And Bluebeard, too, I think, I feel like we've done an episode, too, connecting that with Jane Eyre and Northanger Abbey oh, as well. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So yeah, I always love that. Story. Yeah, that connection. I should reread that. It's been a while. It's mm -hmm. fun. So now how did you two start collaborating? So we were actually just um, reminiscing about this uh, over the past couple of days. And um, we were roommates while we were at the NEH um, seminar that was run by Devaney Lozer. I know, mm -hmm. uh, a longtime favorite. Um, and we were both interested, even though our research was sort of on different things at the time, we've both been interested in um, public humanities. And um, sort of throughout the, the summer that we were um, at the seminar, we started hearing more and more of our colleagues asking questions about, well, like, how do you do public humanities work or engaged um, work when you're looking at historical literature? And so I think in a sort of impromptu way, Bridget and I um, got together and we worked with one of our colleagues who was there, uh, Dan Schierenbeck, um, to talk about the ways that we 
use Austin and other women writers from the, uh, the same time period in our classes and in public projects. And then the project sort of grew out of there. Um, I have to give Bridget total credit for the, the book project idea. Um, and she can say more about it, but Bridget approached me and said, you know, I think that there's a real need for this book. I've talked to an editor. Um, she can talk more about that. And um, then we spent the next six years working on it. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, The well, the University of Iowa Press um, has a humanities and public life series. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about um, kind of thinking about ways that humanities scholarship and teaching can engage with broader public issues and um, uh, broader communities. And so when we pitched the idea of doing something specifically for literary historians, they were really excited about it. And I think the the great thing about working with Danielle, I mean, there's a there are so many things I could say that are great about working with Danielle, but I think part of what was really exciting for the book is that we work, we do public humanities work in really different contexts. So mm -hmm. she's at a public school and I'm at a private school. Hers is a large university and mine's a small liberal arts college. Um, she's in LA, uh, as urban as it gets, and I'm in rural Minnesota. Um, she's in a traditional academic position and I'm in a kind of all tech position. So we just have really complementary experiences mm -hmm. um, that, that I think paint a broader picture of kind of how literary historians can engage with broader publics um, and um, and do this kind of work on the ground. And also just, I mean, so that so that's, I think, a good, um, I think, a benefit to the book that we have that broad experience. But also, um, I think we, we also just share really similar values, though. So mm -hmm. as kind of diverse of experiences we bring, I think we really share a lot of values in terms of um, kind of how we see the role of bringing students into this work and and thinking about how to both honor literary history while also honoring kind of the, the real concerns and priorities of our students today um, mm -hmm. and and thinking about the real value of this that it's not it's not so much for us about oh we love historical literature we want to try to convince as many people, as possible that they should also love historical literature. No, I mean I think we're really we're really committed to in, to kind of addressing the complicated problems our world is facing today and we both sincerely believe that historical literature has something really valuable and meaningful to tell us at this moment. Yeah. yeah. And I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah, and I think I would just add to that too, that I think one of the things that Bridget and I really value is thinking about our own experiences as as readers from, you know, the time we were probably in middle school or high school um, until today, and the way that the experiences that we've had with not just people who are in our classrooms, whether it's students or colleagues when we were um, students, but um, also the varying um, expertise that other fans of Austin bring that, you know, when we talk to our families, our parents about what we do, and they're not experts necessarily, they're still bringing um, their own kind of worldview in a way that always kind of makes more interesting and complicated the things that we're working on. Um, so we find that to be, I think, really vibrant and valuable. Now, you guys gave an awesome presentation at our JASNA GCR winter meeting. And Thanks. I know you were running a little low on time with that. <laughs> so please, like, feel free to tell us a little bit about that presentation. And just, um, you know, what was cut for time? Because I think there were some some cool things that actually didn't quite make it in there. Sure. So um, part of what we wanted to set up with the Jasna presentation was this this concept we um, we described called activist presentism. So. Presentism, um, if it's a, a term you're familiar with, it's often used pejoratively um, to say, you know, if, if you're reading historical texts through contemporary frameworks, you're being reductive, you're, you're being anti-intellectual, um, you know, we can't apply the standards of today to the past, otherwise we just, um, we, we, we end up um, not being historically accurate, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
um, we really like to kind of think about presentism in an alternative way that's more positive, really thinking about ways that we can read historical texts through contemporary frameworks in a way that is um, historically responsible, but also mutually enlightening and maybe even kind of essential for the kind of continued relevance of our of our field. Um, and so, um, so a lot of what we talked about in that presentation was thinking through ways of reading reading Austen and and um, a couple of her novels and specifically, but reading reading her novels through that kind of contemporary lens in a uh, in a positive way and any even in an activist way we like to pose. So mm -hmm. I think I think Danielle's example from Emma is a really um, is a really kind of great um, example of this. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And I should just say we're in using that term activist presentism, we're building on work that some really great um, scholars and fans of 19th century literature have coined. So if you're familiar with um, the V21 Collective, uh, it's a group of scholars who work on um, 18th and 19th century literature. And particularly, there was a focus on 19th century literature and um, the scholarship that had been coming out of that field, being very sort of committed to uh, historicist models of approaching literature and um, the field was largely very critical of this idea of imposing current values on um, past work. And a lot of the scholars who are very interested in um, amplifying the voices of scholars of color, of writers of color from the time period, um, really, and and valuing the feedback of students also wanted to introduce this idea of strategic presentism, that it's actually really important to bring the experiences that we have today um, to bear on um, the way that we look at texts from the past and that it's kind of inevitable. It's, it's false of us to say that we don't do that because our scholarship is always built out of a particular um, political, sociopolitical moment. Mm -hmm. um, so we found that work really inspiring. And that's helped me clarify um, the work that I've been doing on Emma for a long time now. Um, I've been doing what's called service learning work since I was um, an undergraduate um, in the 2000s. And um, I found it to be especially helpful when I was in a class that I felt really uncomfortable with. So the first service learning class that I had was uh, in a physics class. And as a literary scholar, you can imagine I'm not the most um, adept at physics necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but taking a service learning class where we were learning about the environmental impact of different um, you know, big picture um, industries like the coal industry and things like that, really helped me think about the value of this field that I struggled with. And so when I was a graduate student and what I continue doing today in various forms is thinking about ways that students, whether they're English majors or real, you know, diehard fans of Jane Austen or people who are in my class because it fits their schedule, um, can engage with Austin in different ways. And Emma is this really interesting novel because, um, as you know, I think you've discussed um, in terms of Emma and Clueless, um, people have a kind of love-hate relationship with Emma or Cher, depending on who you're talking about. Right. Um, and I wanted to kind of explore that with students. Um, and the novel, as well as Clueless, um, becomes a really great opportunity to think about what happens when um, a person thinks that they have the ability to change people around them. Um, and so in talking with Bridget and just thinking about using um, Emma in the service learning classroom, we started to think about this idea of the savior complex. It's this mm -hmm. idea that like you're a privileged person who goes out into the world and, you know, helps the less fortunate. And you can think of all the examples where Emma does that and all the examples where Cher does that. Um, and the novel is really um, loving about Emma. The movie's the same way with Cher, but it's also really critical of that stance that um, one person has the ability to um, change people around them. And so, um, the uh, book chapter that we have on Emma and the savior complex is really thinking about the ways that Austin guides us through this kind of problematic perspective and the ways that um, Emma comes to realize that she's um, not as adept at saving Harriet or saving um, 
the the Bates family or anyone else around her um, because she has a sort of limited perspective. Um, so I think that that's been a really useful model of thinking about why a historical novel like Emma, um, even though it seems disconnected in so many ways from the current moment. And I will say like students will initially say that about Clueless too. They'll say like, oh, wow, I can't believe that a movie from 1995 is still relevant today. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I it, It's so upsetting when I say that. <laughs> um, but, then they, but then they find that actually whether it's you know a novel from 1815 or a movie from 1995, um, they're still confronted with these issues in 2019. And using the film and using the novel really helps them to think through these issues in a way that allows them to be critically reflective of what they're doing um, now. And also I think makes them better readers of the, the novel or the film. It makes them sort of more attuned to some of the nuances of Austin's satire in really exciting ways. So yeah, if you guys have any thoughts on Mansfield Park, please feel free to share them or teaching it because it's, yeah, um, yeah it's definitely going to be on everyone's mind on this show for the next few weeks. Well, it's yeah. been described as Austin's most political novel. So mm -hmm. I love, I love that part. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's so interesting when I've taught Austin, particularly when I'm teaching like a survey class where there's only room for one Austin novel. Um, if I choose Mansfield Park, the initial student reaction is sort of like confusion or outrage. So if they know mm -hmm. Austin's works well enough, they'll say, well, like we want to read Pride and Prejudice or... Um, it's usually Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. um, and then some students, as we're reading Mansfield Park, will start out by saying things like, oh my gosh, this is really boring. And Fanny's so not like Elizabeth Bennett or not like Emma or Anne Elliot. Um, but the students, I think, will start to get really intellectually fascinated by um, the the various you know subtle and maybe more overt political references like Bridget was saying that the novel has um, and so we talk about like what does it mean when there's the silence um, after Fanny brings up the slave trade mm -hmm. um, what does it mean that the novel is sort of not so subtly comparing Fanny's labor um, picking roses and running errands for um, Mrs. Norris to um, the kind of silent um, backdrop of colonialism and, and slavery in the novel. Um, and then the move to Portsmouth itself, what that location um, kind of signifies about the slave trade. So the students, particularly because um, as Bridget was saying, I, so I teach at a, a large urban university in LA, Cal State Northridge. Um, and the majority of our students are students of color and first generation. And so I think that they, even though they're, they usually don't leave the novel saying that Mansfield Park is their favorite Austin novel. They'll value the fact that um, a work from that period is grappling with this huge, um, historical injustice and atrocity. Um, and I think a lot of them value the way that Austin does that, um, that allows for conversation. A lot of them would like her to be more kind of politically committed to abolition. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, I think, something that um, they find really interesting in the, in the nuances. And I, I'm sure Bridget has had similar experiences in in teaching Mansfield Park or any moments when Austin gets politically engaged. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I, th I think it's, it's, it's um, surprise too, right? Like I think students are really surprised to see Austin engaging in political issues. I think it's mm -hmm. not, um, not necessarily the narrative they've heard of Austin. Um, but I, I, I think too, because so much of Austin is, um, reading into what she doesn't say right mm -hmm. that can be that can be mm -hmm. tricky right because as you point out it's the silence after that question that's actually mm -hmm. worth kind of unpacking and thinking about it's not the conversation that they have about the slave trade it's the fact that the family is silent right and that that mm -hmm. becomes um that becomes the message that she's communicating i think i think that's um it's it's very austin 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. And the way that it's that conversation is framed just after the narrative of Sir Thomas coming home and seeing this sort of um, insurrection of etiquette with them putting on a, a play about, you know, love affairs and things like that. And, um, you know, he burns the books that they have and um, tears down what they've erected in his home. And so these, the sort of tropes that um, Sir Thomas takes from probably what he's done um, in in his uh, sugar plantation and moving that back into the sort of domestic space of Mansfield Park is really kind of deeply unsettling. And um, I think, like Bridget was saying, allows the students to to interpret um, the actions in in a bunch of different ways, uh, and that makes for a great conversation. So um, I don't know. I kind of wanted to talk to you guys after your presentation to like help us um, with our our problem of sort of reading classical literature like mm -hmm. with these modern eyes. So you guys had brought up Henry T Tilney um, at the meeting, and that that was a lot of discussion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, like we have had discussions about Henry on this show. Um, he came off as a little mansplainy, I think, maybe <laughs> to some of our younger uh, audience members when we did our Northanger Abbey episode. Um, I think there was maybe some thoughts that your students had as well that you could share with us. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I love that you signaled, right, the mansplainy uh, nature of Henry Tilney is something that your younger listeners notice, because I do think there's um, there's almost a kind of generational shift that I'm seeing, too, in, mm -hmm. in my students that are seeing things in Tilney that I, at first blush, don't. Um, and I think totally. that's that's part of the, the, the story I shared at the um, at the Chicago Jazz event. So, um, so I was reading uh, Northanger Abbey with a group of students who were working with me during the summer, doing research on Austin, and uh, a reading group that they were leading at our senior center. So it was mostly um, retirees, um, and we were we were looking at the passage where um, Henry Tilney is talking with Mrs. Allen about muslin and. Mm -hmm. um, and she says, do you understand Muslim, sir? I mean, she's just so shocked and impressed. And, um, and he says, particularly well, I always buy my own cravats and I'm allowed to be an excellent judge. My sister has often trusted me in the choice of a gown. Um, and I had always read this passage um, in one of two ways. It was either Henry Tilney kind of revealing this kind of effeminacy um, in him, right? That he mm -hmm. he understands Muslim. He can talk about women's lives and interests. Um, or more likely, um, it's Tilney being sarcastic and kind of mocking Mrs. Allen mm -hmm. as being frivolous by playing along and pretending to care about Muslim. Um, but either way, I found this totally charming, um, right? Because he's either, he's either, uh, he's either kind of in touch with his feminine side or he's He's, uh, he's funny and he can make right. fun of um, foolish people, right? Um, but my students read it this totally different way. They said, no, um, he's taking away from his sister who had kind of already been denied so many choices in her life, the kind of one remaining choice she had, this kind of one bit of agency over her body that by, by – um, making the choice of a gown for her that he's kind of, she's relinquishing the one choice she might've had for herself. And I, I mean, my first impulse was like, Oh no, I think, you know, let me, let me talk to you about Austin's humor here. Right. Mm -hmm. Like let me explain her irony. And, and then I just, I kind of sat with it for a while and I thought, Oh my goodness, you know, there's definitely something here. And, you know, when I, thought about, you know, so many of these other passages, right, where he's making fun of women's reading and making fun of women's writing, mm -hmm. making fun of women's minds, um, where he says, you know, no one can think more highly of the understanding of women than I do, in my opinion. Nature has given them so much that they never find it necessary to use more than half. Thanks, Henry. You know, right. Super funny. <laughs> um, and like, I, I kind of always understood that he was insulting women, but but I just I thought he was funny, right? I thought he was clever. But um, kind of in the in the context of me too, my students, um, 
you know, really thought of him as like, he's smarter than John Thorpe and he's nicer than General Tilney, but he's just as much of a jerk as they are. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in this reading group, when we got to then this kind of pivotal scene in his mother's bedroom where Catherine is revealing her suspicion that General Tilney has murdered his wife, Henry Tilney is just, he just completely disbelieves her, right? So she's accusing, she's, she's making an accusation of violence against women and he just shuts her down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he just refutes her accusation and he shames her for bringing it up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just read that totally differently after Me Too, right? It just feels like such a well-worn script. Like when a woman accuses a man of violence, like this is the this is the response she's going to get. And so, and the other thing that was so kind of that I noticed about that um, about his rebuttal for the first time is just how weirdly patriotic it is. So he doesn't mm-hmm. actually defend his father against the accusation. He defends his country, mm-hmm. right? He says, remember the country and the age in which we live. Um, and he implies that if you're English or you're Christian, that you're somehow immune to committing crimes against women, right? It's, mm-hmm. He doesn't say, you know, you're wrong, but that it's impossible. And, and so... I, I feel like I just read that really differently after after talking to my students. And um, yeah, and I just, I I was never so uncomfortable because I mean, because of course he's right, right? I think that's yeah. partly, partly why I hadn't sat with that scene is because he's right. You know, Catherine is making a false accusation. Um, mm-hmm. She is misinformed. She has let her imagination get carried away. Um, but his defense just seems very naive and um, kind of blindly patriotic in a, right. in a way that made that made my students uncomfortable and made me uncomfortable too. Yeah, and his defense is also, Bridget and I were talking about this yesterday, but his defense when it sort of moves to a sort of justification by virtue of, um, you know, being uh, civilized from England um, and, you know, of a Christian background is really fascinating because um, his father, one of the things that they talk about in the Abbey is the um, garden that he has and the pineapples that he grows. And that, you know, at the time would have been the signifier for the exotic, for the kind of colonial holdings that England has. And so um, even though he's justifying the lack of violence on English soil um, through through this kind of convoluted logic. Um, the, the resorting to references of nation um, also weirdly implicates uh, that nation in, in colonial violence, right? Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, we talked about this at the, um, at the Chicago meeting, Catherine's not wrong that General Tilney's a bad guy. She just sort of gets the the details wrong, right? right. I mean, um, so if if um, his father hasn't murdered his mother, which, you know, that's that's an asset, I guess. Um, <laughs> he, he still acts in the most uncivil way towards Catherine and really puts her in danger. So um, so Henry's alluding to the civility of England and by, you know, extension, his father, that logic sort of falls apart at the moment that General Tilney kicks her out of the house and sends her on her way by herself with no money, um, no way of contacting her family. And she's really young. That's the thing, too, that I think we, you know, don't necessarily think about. But if you were to send a teenager out today to take a, a long journey like that, no money, no cell phone, um, that's terrifying. Right. Um, and the resolution at the end glosses over that. Like, he clearly recognizes that his father was wrong, um, but he doesn't take back anything that he said. And that's, I think, why Bridget um, and her students really landed on this idea that the the mansplaining thing allows him to be wrong um, and not have to retract anything that he said. Have you guys had any, like besides, you know, Northanger Abbey, have you had any other moments where you've tried to, you know, or you've reevaluated, you know, what you thought? Oh, gosh. So there are so many. 
<laughs> um, Where to begin? Yeah, I mean, in terms of Austin, I guess I'll say, you know, I Persuasion has long been my favorite Austin novel. And, you know, the ending and the, the kind of overt commitment to the, the English military um, obviously is always going to signal this kind of um, problem with the expanding empire of, of uh, the nation. And um, I, I tend to read Austin as being fairly, uh, fairly committed to maybe subtle progressive values. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I like to think about the ways that she's kind of destabilizing the sense of um, stability and normalcy that we see at the end of, of something like persuasion. Um, but, you know, I think, I think that's pro some version of almost blindly loving um, an Austin novel or a Bronte novel for that matter. Uh, the more you kind of discuss it and study it and think about it and really impose these sort of, I think, useful um, activist presentist um, values on the text really changes the way that you look at it. Um, Bridget and I were talking yesterday about Jane Eyre mm -hmm. and why it's Argasso Sea, right? So when you read those together, it's really hard not to to then look back at, at Jane Eyre and not just Rochester, but also Jane um, and the perspective of the novel itself as just so kind of horrifying about, um, you know, this, this figure that the novel seems to try to vilify, but then also kind of replicates as um, an echo of Jane's white feminist anger. And that introduces, you know, this this continuing problem that we have today about uh, white feminism and the ways that it fails women of color, right? So um, it, it changes the kind of like blind love for a, a novel like Jane Eyre, but I think it also really helps to clarify issues that remain important to think about today and, you know, hopefully to, to change in meaningful ways too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what we're going for on the show is sort of like moving beyond the blind love, but like yeah. we value the books, we value the texts for what we can, you know, discuss or, you know, what, what we can, you know, bring out of them. Yeah, but it's, it's really hard to do. I think when you have a sort of longstanding love for um, any novel or author, it's, it's so difficult. I mean, I, I've used this example uh, in Bridget's presence a number of times, so sorry for repeating myself, but um, one of the first times I taught Pride and Prejudice, we were also looking at the film adaptations, and one of my most bright students ever in my career was doing a presentation on um, Darcy and the way that he's been interpreted by, you know, 90s and early 2000s um, media. And she gave this presentation that was a bunch of still pictures of Colin Firth mm -hmm. trying to register the the kind of emotional range that he offers in all of these still photos. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, these are all the same expression. I don't, right. I don't get it. And then I thought, oh my gosh, this is a brilliant satire. Like she's, she's picking up on Austin's, um, you know, kind of maybe gentle mockery of, of the nuances that Darcy misses in Pride and Prejudice. And so at the end, I kind of mentioned that to her and she was like, no, Colin Firth is brilliant. And I was just like, oh, I'm okay, sorry. And that brought out this really great conversation about you know, we in, we bring so much of our own feelings to these characters and these novels. Mm -hmm. So trying to think about that love critically and the novel critically, is a, it's a lot of mental and emotional gymnastics to do. It yes, <laughs> absolutely. It took me a while to get there. Actually, I wrote my senior project as an undergraduate about Austin. And my professor at the time was just like, this is terrible. Like you need to, <laughs> you need to start over and write up, write something else about something else because you clearly just like love this book too much to actually engage with it critically. And so I, I didn't actually write about Austin at all during graduate school, partly because, um, 
I was scared off of it, right? Like, right, I, yeah. I, I, I had this kind of bifurcated sense of myself where it was like, okay, there are the books that I love, and then there are the books that I analyze, and I'm not going to analyze the books that I love because those two things like can't work together. And so that's why I think, um, kind of working with Danielle and and you know discovering ways that kind of public humanities work and and activist presence and like these are all tools that I think can bring those two things together so that we don't have to live those bifurcated lives of separating what we love from what we study um, because um, I don't think it has to be that way. And that, so now I do write about Austin and, um, you know, I, I don't get graded on it, so I, I'm not sure if it's any better, <laughs> but, um, but I don't have, I don't have the, you know, that, that issue anymore. <laughs> yeah. But I think it also, it introduces that idea of like being canceled that, um, mm-hmm. that it, we were talking about in the um, the article that's been so popular on your Facebook page. And, you know, I think the knee jerk reaction to say like, so a given text is sexist, classist, racist. Um, and so we cancel the text or the author, um, you know, that, that knee jerk reaction is understandable, but like we've been talking about in this whole conversation, these really productive, moments of discussion and insight and analysis emerge when we start to think about the ways that, you know, in Jane Eyre, for instance, or in Mansfield Park, um, the the limits that the authors had at the at the moment and the way that that just helps us understand our own limits um, in terms of the way that we deal with issues of race, sex, class, gender, things like that. So mm-hmm. um, it's the the idea of canceling a text seems to be the worst possible um, result because it it forecloses those great conversations that are informing you know basically every podcast that you have and so many formal and informal conversations we have about these texts. What are some of the ways that like your students are sort of engaging with like classic literature? I know you guys. Um, I heard something about a podcast at uh, the yeah. Chicago meeting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my I taught an Austin class last spring, um, primarily for English majors, although I had a good number of philosophy major minors, partly because I was team teaching the class with um, a philosophy professor named Tim Black in our um, in our college. And um Instead of doing a kind of traditional end of semester uh, presentation in a in a seminar room or in a conference room, I thought it would be really fun for students to do something a little different. And one of my students who I've worked with for a number of years now, um, she's really brilliant. Her name is Jessica Stewart. She is um, a first generation student of color. She's also visually impaired. Um, several years ago, came up with this really great public humanities project of um, digitizing 18th century poetry so that um, students who are uh, visually impaired would be able to get the cadence of, of poems in a, a way that, um, that computer readers really lose. Um, and from that, I realized that students were really interested in recording stuff just generally. And of course, podcast culture is huge, especially in um, LA where people are in the car all the time or commuting in ways that, you know, podcasts make life livable um, here in, in all these great ways. So students got together and made um, the series of podcasts based on things that we had talked about throughout the semester. So um, one really great uh, group of students worked on a sort of uh, long form podcast called Queering Austin, where they thought about the different ways that um, even though we tend to represent Austin's work as being very heteronormative and very sort of um, valuing the the marriage plot, um, that that we also see all of these opportunities for for ways that that we can read characters as um, being at minimum sort of committed to these homosocial bonds and beyond that maybe really suggesting um, a, a kind of homoerotic relationship with um, with different characters and one of the students who did that podcast 
um, is a, a student who um, is trans, identifies by, you know, he, she, or they. Um, and uh, they found it to be really empowering to think about Austin this way. They said that um, they were really reluctant to take the class because um, as a, a student of color and as a, a trans student, they were really um, sort of put off by historical literature in past classes and had really only found um, representations of themselves in uh, 21st century writing. And I was teaching this class at the moment that the, the Juno Diaz um, scandal happened. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> and that, that student had just met Juno Diaz and felt really empowered by the conversation that they'd had with him. And um, and at that moment, the, the student had to say this, this figure that I loved now is this problematic figure and the experiences that they'd had in discussing Austin and where Austin works well and where Austin, you know, fails by, you know, her own contemporary standards or our own really helped them kind of grapple with this contemporary issue, this loss of a, a beloved um, figure who really helped them think about being um, a writer of color at, at this moment. So, so the Queering podcast um, episode, I think, was, was really useful. And then so many of them were interested in the media adaptations and the way mm -hmm. that um, Austin is portrayed in, um, in culture today. And there are so many things, as you know, as you guys talk about, that, that can come up. So I think that those are two ways that um, students see uh, historical literature as being really Kind of vibrant and then the other way is just comparing austin with other writers so i'll sometimes bring i know you're talking about um francis bernie so i'll sometimes bring in excerpts of something like the wanderer where we actually see like a white woman in blackface mm -hmm. um and think about like why is it that you know bernie can do this at at the same moment that austin is you know writing mansfield park and there are the silences about slavery and and revolution and things like that um so i think that those are to like comparison is really generative in in that way now at the meeting you guys asked people um just for their ideas for like sort of public humanities like projects or events <laughs> um that would engage with you know austin um have you guys uh gotten any did you guys get any good responses from anyone so <laughs> a, a few things that came up were like um uh basically who's the audience for austin right now mm -hmm. um and it, a lot of the members at the meeting kind of looked around the room and said well there's like a very well-served demographic of people um at this meeting and then there are a lot of uh demographics who are not here so mm -hmm. um there were you know middle to upper class um white people of a certain age, let's say like middle age, um, people who have the time and money to spend uh, a weekend um, discussing Austin. Mm -hmm. And a number of them noted, you know, we'd really love younger people in general to be here. Um, and particularly, you know, in a place as diverse as Chicago, we'd really like the meeting to better represent what Chicago looks like, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they started to talk about, well, like, what are ways that we can get students thinking, or students, people, uh, community members thinking about Austin or feeling comfortable coming into um, a space to talk about Austin. I know, um, you know, Bridget and I talked about this uh, being people who weren't always involved in JASNA, um, being a little intimidated by um, going to JASNA events because um, whether or not people are scholars of Austin, they are experts in Austin. And that can be really frightening if you're new to Austin or new to any text. Um, so what are ways that people can bring their fandom, their love of Austin, another historical figure, um, to, to people who have who are either who have a love of a given author or text, but are don't feel as sort of privileged to talk about that um, that love or how how do you get people, students, um, readers in general to read these texts when maybe they've had to read Pride and Prejudice in 10th grade and really resented it and didn't like it. 
Um, how do you show that the experiences that um, that these characters have can be meaningful and relatable? We, I think we started out talking about this idea of likability, right? Like yeah. how much you can like a, a character and um, either getting getting readers to see that or uh, that there are, are points of harmony or that even if they don't like a character, that that can be a really generative place to start also. So I don't know that there were specific, um, here are the five things that we're going to, to do to make that happen. But right, right. I think the awareness that um, it should happen is a really good start. And then, you know, I think the... the mediums like the podcast really invite people in, um, in a way that's so much more inclusive, right? So that's right. creating this, um, this space for people who might not have the money to pay for the lunch, um, to come and talk about Austin. Um, so I think a, a lot of that is like, what are the ways that, um, media can, can bring people in, um, one of that's that was probably the biggest thing that people were talking about so um yeah I don't know I mean Bridget have you talked about that with your with your students or colleagues yeah I mean I mean part of what I'm remembering about that conversation or the different conversations we had while we were in Chicago were um I mean it's not just though like the the burden of the cost of the lunch as if there are like people lining up kind of wishing they could be in this Jane Austen world but not having the means to participate. I mean, I think I think Austen in some ways can really like actively turn people off, right? And mm -hmm. I think I think we also have to kind of acknowledge and respect the um you know, perceptions of Austen as as you know, writing heteronormative novels about privileged white people and their first world right. problems, right? I mean, yeah. um and, and I think part of part of what we talked about the meeting is, you know, you know, we we talked about the the kind of issues of colonialism in Mansfield Park, but also in many of the novels we have um, we have a kind of rich diversity of socioeconomic status, right? And and that Austin is really um, kind of addressing and confronting. Um, the, the kind of widening gap between the rich and the poor at this moment in mm -hmm. English history. Um, and, um, and, and I, and I do think that if one way into the novel for, um, for students or community members who might, who might, um, you know, come to Austin with, um, you know, some preconceived, um, uh, you know, disinterest or kind of feeling ostracized by that. Um, I, I think that I think that her the way she talks about class can be can be a good um, entree in. And we are back. Okay, so Lauren, before we go any further, what are you doing? Come on, Mansfield Park, really? You're gonna get some Mansfield Park chat in there the week after we say it's the final finale, final episode. Well, you know, it's just like the magic of recording and editing. These things happen <laughs> when they happen. But, you know, I had not one, but two awesome Austin experts on the show. And uh, Mansfield Park was on my mind at the time. So it just happened. And you know what? I'm glad it did because here, here, loved that little segment of the show. So now I'm dying to have this Tilney talk with you. Because I feel like we've actually been skirting around this discussion for the past few months, like since the Jane Austen Festival. And uh, I just want to know, are you reevaluating your feelings on your favorite hero? What's What are you thinking about here? Listen, I don't like to be told how to think, Lauren. Okay? Mm. Don't appreciate it. I haven't read Northanger Abbey for a long time. So... Same. <laughs> so <laughs> so we're, we're just going to talk about something so we just are not say, sure about. This is... A lot of this is based on JJ Fields okay, <laughs> and me right. being a teenager and really fancying that bloke what was on Death on the Nile because mm -hmm, mm -hmm, he was in that mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. and he looked great. Anyway, yeah, so I did feel myself bristling so much when I was listening to that part of the show because, mm -hmm. you know, I think that Henry Tilney is funny and I think that 
Henry Tilney is clever. But then as it was going on, it did really start to open my mind, uh, open my eyes. And I was like, oh, well then I guess this interview and then that great talk by Glynis Ridley at the Kentucky Festival, I was just like, oh, I should probably just reevaluate these feelings because mm-hmm. you've got two people who are smarter than me being like, maybe we're not reading it properly. And that's what I'm constantly saying to everyone on this show, right? We're not reading Jane Austen properly. And I'm yeah. just sat here in my little Henry Tilney hot tub, private party for one. Like I totally get this character and where he's coming from. And I think the thing that I need to remember is that like Austen is funny and Austen is clever, not Henry Tilney. And so mm-hmm. the joke's probably on me like the reader for not paying more attention to the fact that in Northanger Abbey, both Henry and John are these like terrible boors who aren't really <laughs> listening to any of the women around them. <laughs> so like one just happens to be hot and charming and then the other one just happens to have a funny hat and like a great fucking horse. <laughs> like the best horse. And I love that horse speech. But both of them... You both, love of them. both of these guys, can like, I just say too? Huh? I love both of them. Yeah, I do yeah. love both of them. All that's <laughs> happening is I'm like, oh, I like terrible people. Uh, John Thorpe talks over women. Henry Tilney talks around women. So I don't think mm. he talks over them, but I think he talks around them. But then neither mm-hmm. of them listen, like, ever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, this is interesting. But, yeah, that was what I was thinking when I was listening to it. I really feel like we might need to do a Northanger Abbey read along because I'm just. Really rethinking Tilney without actually revisiting the text in full. Yeah. It's not helpful. Like I'm looking at like isolated quotes and whatnot on the internet. But um, so yeah, without revisiting the text, my thoughts are <laughs> that I, I have been like sort of rethinking Tilney because um, with Northanger Abbey, I've always done that like thing where I immediately labeled Catherine as young and naive and Henry just by comparison, is like older and wiser, right? But that doesn't mean he has all the answers. It doesn't mean he's right. No, but I feel like it's in his dialogue as well, isn't it? Because he's like, he tells like, I don't want to say like, he's not telling her what to think, but he he talks to her as if like, he's known so many other young women. Mm -hmm. Like he talks about her life in a way that makes him seem, but like, that's all coming from him. Like we don't get given evidence of it, right? It's just him talking. Yeah, it's just him talking. And I've always sort of like taken him at face value. And I'm like, why is that? Is that because he's a man? I mean, I'm just like, just like sort of, you know, investigating maybe my own possible internalized misogyny. That's all. (laughs) Um, But I do think that he actually is a naive young man, like, Mm because that response is insane. And we will play... um, Dr. Glennis Ridley did a great talk on Northanger Abbey and also um, a, has a great segment in there on Tilney and sort of his response to Catherine when she accuses his father of murder. And um, it's insane, like him to say, like, think of England, think of the yeah. age that we live in, like this <laughs> could not possibly happen. Um, and obviously, and, like, like, no one remembers that speech because no one's been putting it in the adaptations. Right? No. Is it in the adaptations? I Does don't know. <laughs> think of England, Catherine. Think please. of England. Please think of England. I mean, instead of saying like, no, you don't know my father. He's not that kind of guy. And that's not what happened. And blah, blah, blah. It's, it, instead of like even taking it personally, yeah. he's just like, this is a thing that could not happen in our day and age. And it does. It like yeah, absolutely it does. Yeah. So um, yeah, I do think that's something I have just like, it's like an Austin moment that I have just missed completely. And um, I do think that it actually should be revisited. Maybe we should talk about that. Yeah, maybe. But, but you know, this episode almost over. So we'll have to do it <laughs> another time. But it's funny because like, I think that just really puts me in mind of that uh comment just about how um when we discuss fiction like thoughtfully and at length like it's the most useful way of stopping books from being cancelled right now I don't mm-hmm. think anyone is out there on the picket lines trying to get Northanger Abbey cancelled right but we've been reading it this one way you know like and it's starting to come up in conversation and that conversation is making us reconsider 
how we felt about it but it has to happen in a specific way right like the conversation Mm -hmm. you can't just be like you're wrong about this like this is the situation and if you're not reading it you're an idiot like you have to be Mm -hmm. in an environment that is conducive to that um i do think that as readers we need to take the time just to think about what's being written and like why it's being written like that Mm -hmm. and it's funny because there's a section in the book on Susan Far that I'm reading at the moment about transnationalism and I was thinking about it this morning and I think what's really special and cool about places like the Facebook group the Bonnets at Dawn Facebook group is because you really start to get a sense of that transnational community and transnational readings on Mm -hmm. texts because everyone is that we're all coming to it from different places physically but also like emotionally or culturally and you can have two people with the same like well on face value very similar backgrounds who don't access stuff in the same way Mm -hmm. Um, and i think like us in general too i think the tone that we're setting and the tone that i would like to set is like none of those viewpoints are wrong like everything i just said about you know like me sort of reevaluating Henry Tilney and possible mansplaining or just how I am responding to him. Like that is just me sort of reevaluating this text, reevaluating my own thoughts and like why I think a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying like this is what it is and everyone else is wrong. I think that's like kind of the heart of like what we're trying to do at Bonnet to Dawn. Like, okay, this is just what I'm thinking about right now. Could this be a thing? Yeah. And then the other thing that it's made me think about as well is you know, I've said time and time again on this show that the problem that Austin suffers with is that she's too accessible. Like there's too many adaptations mm, and there's, yeah. you know, all of this and like every everybody knows the story of Pride and Prejudice and uh, in comparison to like, say the Brontes or even uh, Elizabeth Gaskell. But then like, is it like, is it that access- uh, accessible for every single person? So like I work with... Yeah. Um, Someone I work with who studied classics at university did admit to me that she'd never read any Jane Austen because she only writes about women who get into trouble and then run away to their wealthy parents who then just fix everything. And so like those comments are really important because like how, how can the Austen that I know be so inaccessible or narrow in scope to other people? Like the Mm -hmm. idea that she's only writing about wealthy white society. And I think what I've taken for granted is the privilege that has made Jane Austen accessible to me specifically. So like Mm -hmm. I do read Jane Austen coming from a space of privilege and I never have to question my right reading it. But then I do think it's important that anyone who considers themselves like a fan of Austen's work for all of the reasons that we talk about her on the show and all of the things that we think are special about her um, and all of the reasons that she doesn't conform to this narrow like wealthy white society identity then like we should do better work at being i don't this is a stupid name but like ambassadors for an alternative austin or like whatever Mm -hmm. it is just like just making sure that when we talk about her we are vocalizing those things like i like i like jane austen because she writes stories that on a surface level seem to be about uh marriage and class issues but the subtext is this whole thing about slavery and it's getting into conversation with an audience who maybe couldn't publicly engage with it because Mm -hmm. of who they were or I love Austin because she gives us a book in which the heroine has to choose between guy A who's coded clearly as an arsehole or guy B who's coded as a good guy but actually they both suck (laughs) Well, it's funny that you're saying all this because I feel like a lot of the work that Bridget and Danielle are doing are just like, it's just, they are trying to be Austin ambassadors, actually. And Mm -hmm. um, they have written a lot about sort of battling those misconceptions with, you know, the students who are coming into their classrooms at, you know, all different levels from all different backgrounds. Um, And yeah, I think you guys actually would really um, enjoy their book. Again, it's engaging in the age of Austin. Get that on Amazon, Barnes no, and Noble. You should get it from an independent book retailer of your choice. I will post links to that uh, on our socials. So you'll be able to find that in our Facebook group along with our read along threads 
We are currently reading the short story Phantomina or Love in a Maze. And uh, what I'm actually really loving about this right now is that a lot of uh, people who have already started to dive into this text are like really surprised. Like everyone's like, oh, wait, (laughs) what is this? What is going on with this short story? So that has been a really great response. And um, I'm looking forward to diving into that a little bit more this week. And then in October, we're going back to an old favorite, an old friend, Mrs. Gaskell. And we are going to be talking about some of her spooky stories, specifically the old nurse's story. So look that one up. It is a fan favorite. And um, I think you'll enjoy talking about it with us on the internets. And Hannah, what are the internets? Where can you find us on the internets? Uh, The internet is the place where you can send me pictures of Foxy Fields. Um, I'd say either as Henry Tilney or that man in the white jacket from Death on the Nile. Uh, That's as much as I can tell you about that that time in my life. Just that white jacket really stuck in my mind, you know? Mm, Yeah. Send me pictures of him. But also find us on Instagram and Twitter, Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook by searching bonnets at dawn and answering just a couple of short questions that prove you're not a robot you're not an international spy you're not uh one of the lobster people from the planet neptune Ooh. i didn't come up with that that's a vicar of dipley joke sorry mm-hmm.